Jesus, we do thank you again for another year, the beginning of a, the beginning of a, a promise, um, which with you is renewed every morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your blessings upon us that are compounded again and again and again as you reveal yourself and continue to reveal yourself to us by your Spirit through your word. And we pray that you would do a little bit more of that today, that um, as we go through this next section in Numbers, that, um, that you would be magnified and that you'd be prized in our hearts that are so often prone to wander, as the hymnist says. And we pray that um, the beauty of who you are and the beauty of what you've done for us would captivate us, captivate our affections, not just our intellect. So we pray for that this morning, that, that you would continue the great work that you've promised to do as the author and the finisher of our faith, to redeem the whole person. We pray for that in your name this morning. Amen. All right, we are in Numbers chapter 7. Good morning. Numbers chapter 7. And uh, as I was indicating uh, to the uh, captive audience before, uh, we're going to do all 89 verses of chapter 7 this morning. We should get out about 2 o'clock. Um, so, yeah, no kidding. So, but, but before we get to that, one of the things that we have to grapple with in studying the Bible is the Hebrew penchant for organization. All right? There, there's a, there's, it's different than ours. Um, look at verse 1 in chapter 7. It says, On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, then the chiefs of Israel, and goes on. What, what's the time frame here? What's the time frame? In Exodus 41, uh, 40 verse 1 and ver verse 17, uh, it tells us, Moses tells us, that he completed setting up the tabernacle on the first day of the first month in the second year after the people had left Egypt. All right? What's the time frame for the events in chapters 1 through 6? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Somebody tell me, what's the time frame? Setting up the tabernacle, the first day of the first month of the second year. What's the time frame on this one? First day of the second month of the second year. So, one year later. No, it's the same year, but which comes first chronologically? One is first before chapter 7. Chapter 1 is in the second month. Chapter 7 is in the first month. Why would you do that? So I'm, I'm a product of Western thought, right? And I like to see things organized. This happened on July 4th. This happened on July 5th. This happened on July 6th. I like to see it that way. But Hebrew thought, this is something we've got to wrestle with. Why do they organize it this way? It's not about, it's not just facts in scriptures. I guess the point I'm trying to get to. 
They don't organize things just for facts. They organize things to, to, to say something. There are themes that each of these cycles that we see in numbers are presenting to, to us, to the people then, what they memorized, what they talked about with their kids you know, through those centuries, and Paul says, to us, on whom the end of the ages have come, he says in Corinthians. So, th this, it bugs me. <laughs> the way they do. it just does because I want I like chronology, and and you know the gospels are that way. Three fourths of the gospels are not chronological. Three fourths of the gospels are written by Jews. It's only Luke, the Gentile, that says, "This is but I'm going to give you an orderly account, right?" <laughs> I can't deal with this Jewish thought. I got to do, it. but the, so I guess the question we come to when we start this next cycle is. Why, why, why this and, and not put this first? What, what's he trying to show here? Because in Jewish worldview, and this is a worldview issue, the way he's setting it up is these aren't just facts. These aren't just, it's not just a recitation for a history exam. It means something. What God is showing has purpose and meaning in the events that are taking place. And that's how we have to approach this. What is he trying to say? Not just what king was in what year to what year. But that's not what it's about. It's about what the author of history is presenting history to convey something. Does that make sense? And that's the way this, the thought is set up in this. Each historical thing pocket, there are about five cycles of numbers, and we're in cycle two. Each pocket means something. It's there for a reason. So we're going to look. The first, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, because it's, it's, it's just easier that way. The first cycle that we completed a few weeks ago dealt with, it, it was really focusing on the, the blessings to the people, right? These are people delivered out of slavery. And so we we walk through the blessings of the people. It, it, it instructs them on holiness and instructs them on, on wholeness. It gives the, the orderly task to the Levites. It gives the orderly task to the priesthood. Um, it talks about matters of purity within the, within the congregation and, and special forms of dedication, that, you know, the Nazarite vow to the laity, that they could do this kind of stuff. So it's really focused on the blessing peace, harmony, unity of the people themselves because God brought them out. So we're looking at the orderly society kind of stuff. And it concludes with that priestly benediction we went over. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine. That, all of that. It concludes with that priestly benediction which, which points to the watchful protection of God over his people. Again, they're receiving this wholeness, this peace, this, all this stuff. So one through six kind of show what that looks like. That's the first cycle. All right. So the second cycle we're going to see, how many S's in that sentence? The second cycle we're going to see is uh, really chapter 7 through 9, I think bleeds into chapter 10, midway in chapter 10. It's a celebration of God's presence. Here's what I'm giving you, orderly society, purity, holiness, all these things. And now the response is a celebration of the people of God's presence. First thing we look at is the tabernacle. Right? That's the first thing we're looking at today. So it begins with the tabernacle. Then it moves. The second thing we'll see is the, the second. All these S's. I'm feeling like a, if I had dentures, they'd be out that way by now. Um, this is second, the second celebration of the Passover will be, will be in chapter 9. So we're going to see uh, a lot of this stuff focused on the presence of God 
and, and, um, and them uh, worshiping him. So the next few chapters also serve to supplement events that are not found previously in Exodus or Leviticus, and they demonstrate that Moses and the Israelites had kept the commandments of God that had been given in earlier chapters. So with that background, there's purpose, <laughs> what's going on, even though it's out of date order. With that background, uh, let's, let's look at, uh, we'll start with verses 1 through 3. We only have 89 to go through, so we're just going to start with 1 through 3. <laughs> so on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the, for every, wait, does anyone read that? For every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. I think the time has come where this edition of my Bible is too small. I'm now sad with great sorrow. I'm, okay, anyway, all right. Is that what it is? All right, so um, verses, verses uh, 1 through 3. According to Exodus 40, 9 through 10, God commands Moses to anoint and consecrate the tabernacle and its altar of burnt offering. And that's fulfilled, we saw, and I know you all remember this, back in Leviticus 10 when we went through that. They, they fulfilled that consecration of, of the tabernacle and the altar there. On that very same day here in Numbers, we see that the leaders of Israel are bringing contributions into the tabernacle. And, and it's the same leaders that we saw that were involved in the census. The same order, same everything. Um, verse 3 tells us that they brought these on six wagons. Do any of you have a translation other than the ESV? This is a sad day for me. Yeah. I got my phone. So okay. Uh, yeah. What does it say? In the NIV. In the, in the nearly inspired version, what does it say? They brought us their gifts before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, an ox from each leader and a cart from every two. Okay, so six covered carts. The ESV just says six wagons. If you have an NASB, it probably says covered carts or covered wagon, right? Cart. But I'm wearing boots, so I'm, I'm down with the wagon. You're down with the wagon? So the ESV doesn't have the word covered in it. And it bothers me because there's, in a minute you'll see why I say, it, say this, it's pregnant with meaning. Mm -hmm. um, because covered here um, has the, 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 is related to a word that means to swell up. Okay? And we saw this word. It's rare, but we saw it used also in chapter 5 whenever we talk about the cursed woman and if she had committed adultery, she drank the curses into her and her, her belly would swell. That's the idea behind the wagon, to swell up. So what does that convey to you about the wagons? Full. They're full. They're packed. They're swole. <laughs> they're, there's a lot of stuff in there. Think about that. This is a fraction of what God plundered from the Egyptians. Just a fraction of it. And if you remember all that stuff that we talked about, the materials that they poured into the tabernacle, the gold and the silver and the bronze and all the materials and the very costly fabrics that they used and all of that. And then you have them 
bringing wagons, oxen, and then we'll see other utensils and all this kind of really rich stuff that they're donating to the, this is a fraction of what they plundered from the Egyptians. That just astounds me. Again, it's a tie-in to that, the blessing that God had given them we saw in the first cycle. So you see kind of the movement there of the themes. Um, the focus on the previous section is the blessings of God, and now they're shown here to celebrate His presence in the tabernacle. All right, look at verse 4. Let me see if I can zero in on that. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting. And give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed, and the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. All right, let's stop there. So what are these wagons to be used for? What, is it, what does God tell Moses to use them for? And why does he divide it up this way, you think? Service of the meeting. Service of the meeting. How so? What kind of service? And They're carrying the parts of the tabernacle. Yeah. Uh, okay. So he's... Guys that are supposed to carry the ark on the poles, they shouldn't have ever had a wagon, yeah. which happens later. Right, right. So we have two families of Levites who are serving the tabernacle that need wagons to do what they're doing. They're, they're setting up the tabernacle, they're tearing it down, they're carting it, pardon the pun, from one place to another, right, as they're moving around the, the, the desert wilderness area, right? One family does not because, as Tammy points out, and, and as the, God says, there's, there's one family, that's, they don't need wagons because they're carrying everything. They're carrying the ark, they're carrying the, the, the altar, they're carrying other, all, all these other things. So they don't need wagons. And it keeps them from being tempted <laughs> by giving them, anyway, there's that. But you give one family two and one family four, why do you think that is? Is according to his service. According to his service, okay. From what they had to take, I would assume that the family who got more wagons had either bulkier or heavier things. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you've got you've got the the second guys, Marari, who have um, I always want to say Ferrari. I don't know why, but Marari, they've got bigger things, bigger you know uh, instruments to take care of and, and to cart, so that it's going to be bulkier. They need more wagons to do it. So that's exactly right. It's very practical and makes sense. Um, all right. Let's look at verse uh, 10 and 11. 10 and 11. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings, one chief each day, for the dedication of the altar. All right. Wagons and oxen, what else are they bringing? What does it say? And those two verses. Offering. Just offering, just general offerings, right? Now, it'll get more detailed here in about 10 through eight, uh, 12 through 83. We'll see that. Um, it gets more detailed. But it's just generally offerings. 
Notice that word, what, that word dedication there. Do you see that word in your translation? Is, somebody, is, it every, is it translated dedication? Everybody's? Yes. Okay. That word transla uh, translated, or that word dedication in Hebrew, translated dedication from Hebrew, is the word Hanukkah. Uh, some scholars have traced that word back to the idea of initiation in Hebrew. Um, so the idea is that these are sacrifices that are initiating the use of the altar. Uh, it's very similar to the same idea you see in the Maccabees where they institute the temple again through sacrifice and they call it, or the altar again, and they call it, well, Hanukkah, right? So, so what is he having them do, though? These offerings that they're bringing, they're dumping it all at once? What's going on? How many, one chief per day, how many chiefs? Twelve. Twelve. So we have the twelve days of Hanukkah. That's what we have here. So Moses is, I'm not going to do that. I was going to sing it, but I'm just not going to do it. So, so you have every day, in fact, the, 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 the way that the text literally reads, uh, one leader for the day, one leader for the day. So the repetition here has a distributive Mind, you know, Hebrew, you, you, it, it, repetition uh, increases it. So the repetition here has a, has a distributive sense in the Hebrew. Um, and the 12 days, each day, a leader is bringing from their tribe the same exact gift. They're not trying to outdo each other. You brought 10 bowls, I brought 11 bowls. You know, they're not doing that. It shows the, the unity and the harmony of the people in celebrating the dedication of the altar, um, it's a big deal. Can I have a question? Sure. Is the the dedication here to, to kick off? You know, the initiation of, or the, the the first dedication here is that spelled out in Exodus or not, uh, Leviticus? Whatever the tabernacle is being, you know, all the plans are being laid. Is there? Is it spelled out to have this one specifically? I can't remember. Yes and yes. Okay. In, in Exodus and Leviticus, this is the idea is it's going to be dedicated, it's going to be used, you got to do it this way, and, and, they're, and they're filling in, we did it that way. Yeah, they're, fulfilled, they're showing that, that they fulfilled it that way. That's part of the reason this is here. Um, big question here, do you see a divine command to bring these gifts in this passage? He just, uh, in, in Leviticus and Exodus, he says, just dedicate and consecrate. That's all he says. The Lord said, said the to Lord Moses. Said, yeah. To what? Offer their offerings. To offer the offerings. He did he say, did he command the leaders bring them? Yeah, he, he said one chief, one day. Right. After they, I mean, never told the leaders bring six wagons, uh, you know, one between two of you and bring 12 oxen, one for each of you. That appears to be of their own initiative in this passage. In this passage, it seems to be, and there's really no indication in Exodus or Leviticus of what they were to bring. Oh, the or the, the, the Right. He just says, consecrate and dedicate. That's all he says. Of their own initiative, each tribe is bringing the same stuff. Now, I'm sure they coordinated. Oh. You know, they had a council. Yes. That they coordinated to what we're going to bring, what we're going to do. But it's, it's a free will offering, if you will. Um, the Lord told Moses to accept them. 
and then how to accept them. How to accept them, what you know, and how to distribute them among among the Levites is the commandment from the Lord. It's not send out a send out a command to the leaders, bring me a gift. Well, but it does say in verse eleven the Lord says each day one leader brings the offering, but it doesn't say what that offering is. But there was also after it's off after they brought it. He said, "Here's how it's to be presented. Here's how the offering is to be on the altar." Okay. That's that's the that's the idea there. So there's no divine command for them to bring stuff. There's no divine command for for what to bring. But once it's there, God says, "Okay, receive it this way." Okay. That's that's the idea. So very much a spontaneous kind of thing is the is the way the text kind of feels on from each of these tribes. Um. In their worship of God. All right, let's let's begin verse twelve. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Amminadab of the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver plate whose weight was a hundred and thirty shekels, one silver basin of seventy shekels, according to the weight of the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense. One bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering and for the sacrifice of peace offerings. Two oxen, five rams, five male goats and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amminadab. On the second day... Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. And it's the same offering. And it goes on. For, for how many days? <laughs> Twelve days. All the way down to the end of, um, where are we? 80, 83. It's the same thing every time. <laughs> a lot of a lot of scholars think that this is a lot of scholars think that this is actually a, a, a table record. It's like a spreadsheet that they the, <laughs> and because of the way that it's set up, it's very much a record of of a, a check a checklist. Yeah, exactly. So the entirety of the Book of Numbers is a very large Excel sheet. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe some of it. Maybe some of it. Um, there are only minor variations throughout this, what, 76 verses, 77 verses? There's only minor variation. I was wondering how we were going to do that. Yeah, this is how we're going to do it. Um, the offerings are identical. The, the most notable difference that, that I want to draw to your attention, that I think I just thought was interesting, is the very first one, Nashon from Judah. Um, how is he? How is he described? And compare that to the very next guy, Issachar, Nathanael. Is this described as the tribe of, and all the others are the chief of? Why would they make that different? Why would he not be described as the chief of Judah? Jesus. Jesus is the chief of Judah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, Normally I jump right on that, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, because he's not the chief, maybe uh, Amenadab is currently the chief, and so he's just doing it for his tribe rather than for 
the the rabbis I say the rabbis as if they were all in unison some rabbis argued that they didn't give him the title of chief because he went first and they didn't want him to lord it over the others <laughs> that he was the chief there's I really don't know but that's a that's a guess uh, we really don't know um, but um, we see there that the offerings are the same for every tribe and in 84 and 88 uh, 84 through 88, you have this, um, this summary. This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel. See, he's included as a chief there, but not the first. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver basins, twelve golden dishes, twelve times everything we just read. Okay? This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. There's the summary. And then look at verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. So verse 89 bothers some people. They think it feels out of place. You've got this record of offering, you've got all this stuff going on, and then out of nowhere you have Moses talking to God in the tabernacle. Why is it not out of place? What do you think? Because I want to argue it's not out of place. <laughs> well, it shows that all of the above 80-something verses were according to God's plan. He is showing his um, approval, basically, by speaking to Moses from the tabernacle that they have just consecrated. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He is showing his approval of their worship, of their dedication, of their consecration of the altar, and all the things that he told them to do, he's showing his approval by doing what? Giving them revelation. <laughs> Revealing more. And he's dwelling in the tent. He's talking to Moses. That, that uh, language there, um, that language there, shows the, these, these 12 repetitious days that we see serve as a reminder of the total tribal support for the worship center, the tabernacle, the worship leadership, the priesthood, the worship process, the sacrifices, and the worship to God, Yahweh, who gives graciously to a special creation. And God shows His approval of that, of their recognizing and their engaging in all of this by entering the tabernacle, being in the tabernacle, and speaking with Moses. The language that he uses, uh, that Moses uses there, um, it, uh, for speaking, is a rare form of Hebrew, actually. And it indicates that the speaking is not one-sided. This is as a man speaks with his friend. You see this referred to later. It's a conversation that he's having with Moses. There's fellowship there. There's communion there. There's right relationship there because they've been obedient because he's present and there is blessing from his presence from the tabernacle there the meeting between God and Moses is a conversation alright I have a few minutes this is all great everything's clicking along with the gifts and the stuff and they're in unity and harmony and there's a guitar somewhere playing. <laughs> All looks to be going well. <laughs> but 
we have five cycles in numbers, right? First two looking pretty good, starting off pretty good in the second one. Three, four, and five are a recitation of their rebellion against God, Moses, Aaron, and the priesthood, their ultimate rejection of the promised land, the rejection of this tribal harmony presented in this section. They, they go through all the motions of worship here. All the unity, all the obeying of the law, and they missed it. They missed it. And he's there. He's talking. And they miss it. But that's pre-cross, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. We'll start in verse 1. And we'll go through verse 89. <laughs> For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And that's a physical cloud, not internet. <laughs> and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. And all brought the same offerings. And all heard from Moses the same speech. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these two things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We might not desire evil as they did. What does that indicate to you? What does that tell you? What's the desire that's going on there? We should learn from their mistakes. Okay, what are they desiring as they're giving offerings? What are they desiring as all this stuff that he re recounts here? What does he point to their heart? Even though they're going through all this stuff under the cloud, through the, through the water, there's still evil in the heart. They're looking unified. They're looking like they're in fellowship with God. These first two cycles look amazing. But they lost it. They died. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is he saying? What was their big flaw in all of this? They were engaged in sexual immorality. They were engaged in um, grumbling. They tempted Christ. 
What do all of these things flow from? Prizing those things more than they prize Jesus, more than they prize God, right? Is that what it comes from? From idolatry. What's bigger than God? My idol. Flee from idolatry. Each of these points, each of these things that he's talking about here, points to a lacking in the heart. There was duty, but there's no delight. Saving faith is not mere assent to doctrine. Saving faith is not merely tight logic in your gospel presentation. Saving faith is not merely an intellectual exercise. There's emotion there. There's emotional investment in the relationship. There's love for Christ. There is abandonment of everything for the sake of pleasing Him. Your, my, our spiritual affections are not optional in the Christian life. It's not optional. If we don't delight in Christ, we dishonor Him. If we delight in other things more than Him, we dishonor Him. God commands us again and again to delight in Him above all things. Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, that comes after chapter 10. Jesus said it this way, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus doesn't say, in his business acumen, he goes and purchases the field. He doesn't say, in his logical response, he goes and purchases the field. In his joy, Jesus points to emotion there as the driving force behind giving everything for the purchase of the field. And that's what the kingdom of God requires. Why would we do that? We would do it because, as the psalmist says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. That's why we do it. If love is better than my very life, it's certainly better than sex. It's certainly better than Fortnite. Right? It's certainly better than approval of men. It's certainly better than the latest fashion or the latest political outrage. It's better than gossip. If it's better than my life, it's certainly better than those things. It's certainly better than, better than the latest offense I've suffered at the hands of another believer. If his steadfast love is better than life, it's better than everything else. We have a tendency, I think, in Reformed circles to view our emotions as the caboose of the thing. Right? Don't be driven by your emotions. There's such a fear, I think, of wrongly using emotions. And that's a valid fear. We see a lot of people who are loosey-goosey with whatever their unredeemed emotions take, where they take them. I get that. 
But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> Christ came to redeem the whole person. Not just how we think, but how we feel. And our affections are redeemed by pursuing Him and, and, and loving Him and prizing Him above everything else. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. That's Apollos. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. How can you joyfully accept? They joyfully did it. They didn't say, well, if I don't go to the prison and be identified with Christians, then I'm probably going to get thrown out of the church and I'll later have to have this penance thing going on and then we got to do all this stuff being let back in. So logically, I think probably the better thing to do is just go ahead and if I want to stay in the church to, to let them plunder my goods. <clears throat> no. It was joyful. Joyfully allowing your house to be invaded by people with knives. What's that? That's illogical from a certain point of view. Right? There's an objection to reform theology that it robs people of their free will and reduces them to robots. Have you heard that one? If, if, if election is true, then all we are is automatons or whatever. It's, let's not live out the caricature. <laughs> Just because we believe in sovereign grace doesn't mean that we don't have emotion and love for Jesus that we express. In fact, we have to. We have to seek that. We have to. Any, any sin we conquer has to be because of a greater love for Jesus. It, it's an emotionally driven thing. Born in logic, born in understanding the Word, born through studying Scripture, granted, you got to have that. But if our doctrine is not warming the heart, we don't get the doctrine. We may be able to regurgitate a bunch of smart people, but if it's not causing me to fall on my knees in the morning, thanking God for His grace for another breath, I'm missing it. I'm preferring something else other than Jesus. And my emotions are not being redeemed, even though my head may be able to tick off a couple of confessions. Does that make sense? Here's a teaser for a possible retreat theme if we do one this year. I'd like to. That emotion, that redeemed emotion, <clears throat> is born by the Holy Spirit. You can't manufacture that. And so there's a tension, right? As in everything in the Bible, there's a tension. Command what you will, then give what you command. Right? Augustine, Augustine, Philip and I'll have that debate again over lunch sometime, said, command what you will, but give what you command. I have to be pressing into the joy of the Lord. I have to be hungering after, let me delight in you rather than this thing over here. I have to be pressing for, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is taken by force. 
it's violence. It suffers violence and, the, and it's taken by force. You have to fight. There's peace in Christ because we've been forgiven and then you go to war, right? I have to fight the, the, the unredeemed emotions. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And press forward with redeemed emotions. You're my portion forever. I want to pant for you like, like, the, like the, the deer pants for the water. If I'm not hungering after Jesus, something's wrong. Fix me. That should be the prayer of our heart. And I argue, reformed understanding of who God is should drive that. It should drive that. It did with the Puritans. That was a happy bunch, regardless of, you know, Scarlet Letter and all that. That was a happy bunch because they wanted to experience Christianity. They wanted to experience who God is. And they did that because of the joy that the Holy Spirit granted them as they fought for study, study, study. You see those guys, they studied. But that meant something. It, it, it warmed their heart and it was born by the Holy Spirit, but they worked for it, right? All right. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If loving these very close relationships more than Christ makes us not worthy, how much more those other things that we ache for rather than ache for Christ? Fight for joy in Christ. It's life and death. I really want that to be our focus this year. I really, I mean, I, I'm, not re, I'm not responsible for the rest of the Rodney is, I'm not responsible for the rest of the church, but I would like to encourage us, and I know you do too, to, to, to press forward, to really, in our daily devotions, not just tick off doctrines. Give me the heart to, to be in awe of you over what this is telling me. How can I be in awe of you? So that's the, that's the focus I'd like for, for this year. As we kick it off, so any any uh, are we are we late? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, any comments, questions, fruit to be thrown? Maybe I should pray, and those who need to leave can leave, and and then and then we'll we'll continue if we if we can. God, we do uh, recognize that our hearts are so defective, and even though uh, you have given us a new heart that is drawn to you and, and has the ability to love your word and love you and what you've done. We, we wrestle with immaturity so much. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would grow us up, that, that we would grow in our, um, not only our understanding of the word, but in understanding and knowing what what it says about you and about your son that that knowing would be um, a fire in us to love Jesus more and that would spill over to us loving each other more because that's how we express our love for you uh, is by loving what you love and you love your people so we pray that you're that your heart would be our heart, that your delight would be our delight, and that we can, we know humbly that we can only be that way because of the work of your Holy Spirit. So we pray for the work of your Spirit within us at the beginning of this year and, and 
may you carry us through to the end. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Eighty-nine verses in one week. You know that. Run me like three weeks to get through three verses.